0: Well, good morning. good morning. So again, the, uh, the crowd is about half as big as it was during the first service. I chided them last week. I said, you guys should come to the second service. We have lots of room. I think there were actually more people that came to the first service this week. So clearly they don't listen to me. But you guys do, so I love you. <laughs> well, good morning. If you have your Bible, please turn to John chapter 1. We're going to be continuing our series in the Gospel of John today. And if you'll remember back to uh, to last week, Pastor Tom gave us an outline of John. If you don't have a Bible, our ushers are going to give you uh, a Bible. You can just raise your hand. They'd love to give you one. If you don't own a Bible, you can keep this one. That's our gift to you. So Tom gave us an outline of, of John last week. And if you remember, the first four chapters are uh, the kind of the introduction to Jesus, Jesus' received, and, and so a number of the, the vignettes that we see in that narrative, we see people who are, broadly speaking, uh, receiving and happy to see Jesus until the opposition really begins later in the, in the book, and what we're doing this morning is we're going to look at, at the, the very first narrative, the very first story in the Gospel of John, and that's the story of John the Baptist. When you uh, go to the eye doctor and they put that giant metal thing in front of you that I I had to look up what it was called and uh, I still actually can't pronounce it, so I'm not even going to try. They put that in front of you and then they ask you to read a, a reading chart right on the back wall that feels about as far away as the back wall feels from me. And it's about the size of an index card, and it's got like two-point font on it. And they're like, well, tell me what you can read. I'm like, I can't even see that there's a chart. And then they start flipping lenses, right? Better one or two? Better one or two? And at first, they're both terrible. So you don't know what to say. You're like, one, I guess? So it seems like a very exact science to me. If you're an optometrist, I really do respect you, but I just don't understand how it works. So, but as they flip through the lenses, things do eventually become clearer. Every lens they flip that gets closer to your prescription, uh, you can see the chart better. The, the, The letters on the chart begin to take shape. You can begin to identify things or at the very least you can say, I know that letter is not that. I don't know if it's a, a C or an O yet, but I know it's not a T, until they reach your prescription, and then finally, you, you can read. In the Old Testament, God promised his people a Messiah. Messiah is a Hebrew word that means anointed one, and it's the title that The Jews gave and that that God promised of this coming Savior King, someone who is going to rule over God's people forever and and deal with their enemies, who's going to rescue them. But it started off just as that, just a, a promise. It started off like a blurry eye chart. And as the Old Testament progressed, It was as if God was flipping the lenses, and every prophecy that came about the Messiah, things became a little bit clearer and a little bit clearer until it really began to to take shape what this Messiah was going to look like. And so today we come to the testimony of John the Baptist, and John the Baptist is the last of the Old Testament prophets, even though he's in the New Testament. He's the last of these prophets who has come to bring more clarity about who the Messiah is. And indeed, John is there to introduce him. And as much as they expected the Messiah, and as much as they thought they knew about who the Messiah was going to be, John's ministry is like God flipping the lens one more time and saying, you you still need a little bit sharper view because you can't see it just right yet. See, despite all of the prophecies of the the thousands of years where where the Messiah had been promised, even right here at this this moment, literally the day before John announces the Messiah has come, there is still confusion. The, the, The Jewish perspective and expectations about who the Messiah was going to be was still a little bit blurry. And the reality is that we often face the same kind of thing practically. Now we have the scriptures, which in retrospect give us a perfect view of who the Messiah is, who Jesus is, but our preconceptions and assumptions and the way that we practically go about our lives often reveal that we have kind of a blurry picture of Jesus too. And so John helps to clarify both for them and for us today. Who Jesus the Messiah is and why he came. So, we're going to read through John 1, 19 to 34. And in the first part of the sermon, all I want to do is just kind of take you through the text and and let you sit in the story so that you can understand what the expectations were like. And like any good story, it has a... a context and background and it's got rising action and it's got a climax. And then like an M. Night Shyamalan movie, there's a twist. And if we don't spend time on things like the context, then the twist isn't going to make sense, but it's a big twist. And it is the centerpiece of what John wants to tell us. And so let me pray for us and we'll start. Father, in Jesus' name, help us not to be slow of heart to understand all of what the prophets have written, but open our minds to understand the Scriptures. Amen. So, we kind of get dropped right in the middle of this story. John the Evangelist, and this is the confusing thing, is that we have John the the gospel writer, the apostle, we call an evangelist. He wrote the gospel. We have him, and then we have John the Baptist, and then there's me, John the Beagle. And so. I will try to be as clear as I can about which John I'm referring to. Probably it's either going to be John the Apostle or John the Baptist. If I start referring to myself in the third person, you can come and take me off the stage. (laughs) John, the, the gospel writer, starts like this. He says, this is the testimony of John, John the Baptist. And we learn a little bit about John in verses uh, 1 to 18, where it says he's not the light, he's not the Messiah. He came to bear witness about the Messiah, but he was a man sent from God. But you need to understand a little bit of the context of where John comes from. But first, we also need to understand what was going on in Israel at the time. Because there's a great deal of messianic expectation. People knew that the Messiah was supposed to come. And so they were expecting him, and they were expecting him in some very specific ways. So in the time between when the, when the Old Testament uh, was finished, about 400 years before Jesus, and the time when Jesus came, there were a lot of uh, Jewish writings that are not part of the, of the Bible. They're not inspired, but they kind of reflect what the Jews were thinking at the time. And so I want to read something to you that gives you a flavor of what the Jews would have been expecting in the Messiah. This is a a passage from what's called the Psalms of Solomon. See, O Lord, and raise up for them their king, the son of David, at the time which you chose, O God, to rule over Israel, your servant. Gird him with strength to shatter in pieces unrighteous rulers, to purify Jerusalem from the nations that trample her down in destruction, in wisdom and righteousness to drive out sinners from the inheritance, to smash the arrogance of the sinners like a potter's vessel, to shatter all their substance with an iron rod, to destroy the lawless nations by the word of his mouth. And he shall be a righteous king. Taught by God over them, and there shall be no injustice in his days in their midst, for all shall be holy, and their king, the anointed, or the Christ of the Lord. He shall strike the earth with the word of his mouth forever. He shall bless the people of the Lord in wisdom and joy, and he himself shall be pure from sin, so that he may rule a great people, that he may rebuke rulers and remove sinners by the strength of his word. And he shall not weaken in his days, relying on his God, for God has made him strong in the Holy Spirit and wise in the counsel of understanding with strength and righteousness. And the blessing of the Lord shall be with him in strength, and he will not weaken. His hope shall be in the Lord, and who can prevail against him? So that gives you an idea of when the the Jews are saying, "We're, we're expecting the Messiah to come. This is who they're looking for. If you think about what they were going through, they had gone through a succession of foreign rulers ruling in Israel, and at this time it was the Romans. And the Romans were, were oppressive and taxing, and, and then the Romans set up a puppet government to, to uh, govern Judea, and it was run by Herod and these treacherous tax collectors, Jews who were traitors and were uh extorting their countrymen and so in the jewish perspective they're thinking well we see in the old testament that god is promising us a king he's someone who's going to come he's going to rule he's going to take care of our biggest problems so we're looking for somebody a son of david who is going to come and sit on the throne and he's going to wipe jerusalem clean of everything in it that is impure and does not worship God and he's going to smash sinners and he's going to be strong and no one will prevail against him. This is who they're looking for. And so it's easy to understand, I think, why people are so excited when John shows up on the scene, which at first when we learn about what John is like, we don't think he's somebody who would garner a particularly big following. John is Jesus' slightly eccentric older cousin. He lives in the wilderness by himself and he eats bugs and he dresses in camel's hair clothing. So you imagine this disheveled person out in the middle of nowhere preaching about repentance and judgment. And you wouldn't think that that people would be particularly prone to go see him. Like, we'll just leave him out there and he'll take care of himself. But people went out to him in droves. The other Gospels say that all of Judea and Jerusalem was going out to John to hear him preach and be baptized by him. And one of the reasons is because of this great expectation about the Messiah, because they saw in John, could, could this be the Messiah? And so we learn in Luke 15 that all the people were in a state of expectation and were all wondering in their hearts about John as, as to whether he was the Christ, And so, the Jewish religious leaders in Jerusalem were going to do their due diligence and send a delegation to investigate, see what's going on out there. So, we see that in verse 19. When the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. It seems like when they came and said, Who are you? They probably also asked a question Are you the Christ? And John said, no, I'm not the Christ. I'm not the Messiah. Well, then they say, okay, what then? Are you Elijah? They expected Elijah to come. Remember in the past summer, or it was last summer, somewhat recently we preached the book of Malachi. Malachi. At the end of the book of Malachi, there's a prophecy that Elijah is going to come before the day of the Lord, that the prophet Elijah would return to prepare God's people to turn to the Messiah when he came. And so they said, well, okay, if you're not the Christ, maybe you're another figure that we're expecting to precede the Messiah. Are you Elijah? And he said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? This would be the prophet that was predicted and." in Deuteronomy 18 by Moses, when Moses said, another prophet will arise like me to instruct you and to lead you. And They said, well, if you're not Elijah, are you, are you the prophet? Are you this other figure that we're supposed to be expecting? And he answered to them, no. And I have to imagine they're getting pretty annoyed because all he's saying is no. But it's really their fault because they're only asking yes or no questions. So then they wise up and they say, okay, Then who are you? Ah, finally an open-ended question. So that we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And John says, well, I am a figure that has been prophesied. I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. So John does claim, he's like, no, I, I am the fulfillment of prophecy. I'm the one who comes before the Lord and his Messiah to make his way straight. Now, they had been sent from the Pharisees, and the Pharisees, who are wonderful examples in missing the point, asked him and said to him, why then are you baptizing? The Pharisees, it's almost like they missed what John said. John said, I'm the fulfillment of Isaiah 40. I'm the one who's coming before the Messiah. It's happening. And the Pharisees are more interested about his baptismal practices. He's like, well, you're not supposed to be doing that, John. That's not how how we baptize. And so John responds to them because they asked him, why are you baptizing? You're not the Christ. You're not Elijah. You're not the prophet. John, you're nobody. Why are you doing this? And John says, I baptize in water. But among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. So John kind of deftly sidesteps their question and says, the baptism thing, that's not as important as you think. What is really important for you to get is what I just said. There is one who is coming, and in fact, he is among you. The Messiah is here, and I'm here to show him to you. And then we reach the the climax of of the story, and the next day, Jesus came to John. This is probably several weeks at least after Jesus was baptized by John and had gone into the wilderness. And now Jesus has come back and is coming to John. And he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. John testified, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, he upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. As the grand reveal, boom, here's the Messiah. And he goes through this whole list of things that's true about the Messiah. He's of a higher rank than John, even though John is this, this prophesied figure of Isaiah 40. The one who's coming behind him is the Lord. And so he's a higher rank than John. He existed before John, which try to wrap your mind around that. The reason for John's ministry is so that he would be made known. The one uh, on whom the Spirit descends and remains is supposed to be the one who's the Messiah. John says, yeah, I, I saw it. I saw the Spirit come down and remain on him. This would be a reference to his baptism. And it's probably also a reference to Isaiah 11 and Isaiah 61 where the Messiah was said to have the Spirit of the Lord on him to rule and to reign. He's the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. And then what sometimes might be the most amazing and controversial thing for us, so he says, he is the son of God. But the reality is for the people who were listening, all of those things, as amazing as they are, were generally expected of the Messiah. If you compare the the kind of expectations that the Jews had, like we read in the Psalms of Solomon, it it makes sense, even calling him the son of God. In 2 Samuel 7, when a Messiah who would sit on David's throne was prophesied, God said, he will be to me a son. And so, even calling him the son of God would not have been surprising to the Jews. Now, the way that we understand it is probably a little bit different with the retrospect of Scripture. But for John to call him, that wouldn't have been surprising. All of this stuff would have made sense to them. And it would have been exciting because, okay, here's the Messiah, but it wouldn't have been shocking. Except for one thing the twist, verse 29. The, the very first thing John says when Jesus comes and it's time for him to reveal Jesus as the Messiah, he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It doesn't seem shocking to us, especially if you've been around church for any length of time. We hear Jesus called the Lamb of God. We sing to Jesus as the Lamb of God. But we we don't necessarily always give it as much thought as we should. And if you place yourself in the experience of these, these Jewish listeners at the time, this would have been shocking. Because John Is offering this final lens, this final clarification on who the Messiah is before he comes. And in doing that, he's he's clarifying three things the Messiah's identity, the Messiah's necessity, and the Messiah's responsibility. And so we're going to break down verse 29 now and see how John clarifies those things for us and why it would be so shocking to his hearers, but why it's the most important thing that we can hear. First, John clarifies the Messiah's identity. We're asking the question, well, who or what is the Messiah? And what was expected, as we've talked about, as a conquering king and ruler? And so John could have led off his, his introduction of the Messiah by saying, behold, the conquering king, or perhaps behold, the great prophet and teacher, or behold, the great moral example. But the thing he chooses to headline is, behold, the Lamb of God. And this was not an expected title for the Messiah. That might seem odd to us looking back because we're so familiar with it, but for them, that was not what they expected. This would have been radical. And part of the reason is because lambs, while they were important in Jewish culture and religion, they were important because they were sacrifices, but not because they had anything to do with kings or conquest or victory. And and so... By highlighting this, John, he's not distracting, he's not taking away from other messianic expectations, because the Old Testament does say, yes, Jesus, the Messiah, is going to be a king, he's going to be a prophet, he's going to be a great teacher. All of those things are true, but, but they're just missing this one piece, this, this piece of the puzzle that makes all the other pieces fit together. He doesn't only clarify it, he emphasizes it. He says, "Of, of all the things that you need to know about this Messiah, this is number one. And this likely would have been puzzling at best and offensive at worst for the people who were listening. Think about that. Messiah is supposed to be a conquering king and John says, here's the lamb. And the Jews have to be thinking... No, John, you, you must have misread your scroll. Um, it's supposed to be a lion, not a lamb. You know, lions are, are tough. They were, they're strong. Uh, John, lambs, lambs die. They, they suffer and die. They're weak. That's why we use them as sacrifices. John, you must, you've probably had too many locusts. There's a, something going wrong with your brain. For, for the Jews to, to think about a Messiah that would suffer was completely opposite of what they expected. Now, the reality is that we can do the same thing. Now, we may not think we do, but we do have a tendency to think of Jesus, the Messiah, in the terms that are most convenient for us. So we become like uh, Ricky Bobby in Talladega Nights. He says, I prefer to pray to the six-pound, seven-ounce, gold-fleece diapers baby Jesus. I like to think about Jesus that way. Or how many times do you talk to somebody and say, well, I prefer to think of Jesus as a good teacher, or I prefer to think of Jesus as a good moral example, or... I prefer to think of Jesus as the embodiment of love or any other thing that we might say, well, this is the Jesus that I prefer to think of. And inside I'm thinking, well, your, your Jesus doesn't exist. Only, only the Jesus of the Bible exists. And we don't get to prefer one thing over another. We're like, well, I, I like what Jesus says about this, but I don't like what he, what he says about this, so I'm just going to ignore that part. But we do have a tendency to do that. And I think both for the Jews at the time, were saying, no, you must be wrong. That's, that's not the Messiah that we're expecting. Both for them and for us who say, mm, I prefer to think of Jesus this way. I don't like the whole lamb sacrifice thing. Oftentimes we, we think that way because we don't have a clear perspective on what our biggest problem is. We don't have a clear perspective on why We need a Messiah, why we need a Savior. And so John also clarifies why the Messiah is necessary. And so his identity, he is the Lamb of God. And why is he needed? Because of the sin of the world. Our tendency is to think that our biggest problem is something outside of us, something about our circumstances. For the Jews, this could have been a number of different things. And so as they're thinking about the Messiah coming, thinking, yes, Messiah is coming and he's going to deal with the Romans. Or yes, Messiah is coming, he's going to deal with those treacherous Herodians and He's coming and he's going to reform the priesthood so that the worship of God is pure. And he's going to bring back the scattered nations so that they can be in Israel. And he's going to sit on the vacant throne. These are all the problems that we have, and Messiah is going to, going to take care of them. What do you think your biggest problem is? Is it something outside of yourself? Is it something that's, it's exterior, it's something that's being imposed upon you? Is it your health, your finances, your job, your spouse, your kids, the relationships that you might have? Is it the government? Is it Donald? Is it Hillary? Is it society, culture? the immorality of the world that we live in, what, what would you say if I were to ask you what your biggest problem is this morning, what would you say? Does it fit into one of those kind of categories? So the, the reason that we, and the Jews especially, had trouble accepting Jesus as the Messiah, as a lamb who would suffer, was because they still were thinking that their biggest problem was outside of them. That they were victims and, and and the Messiah was coming so that they wouldn't be victims anymore. But the reality is that our biggest problem is not outside of us. It's inside of us. It's our sin. Our sin is our biggest problem for a couple of reasons. First, because sin puts us under the penalty for sin, God's righteous condemnation. Sin is not just doing bad things. Sin is a a disposition of the heart that sets us in rebellion against God. And for us to, to continue in sin is for God to continue to allow rebels to run wild in His world, but He will not forever. And God will judge all sin because He is a righteous judge. And and so because of our rebellion, we have cut off ourselves from God. We're alienated from Him, and we deserve His just punishment. Sin also brings pollution. It creeps into every corner of our being so that there's nothing that we do that isn't tainted by it, which means that there's nothing that we can do and offer back to God that is enough to convince him that we deserve to be forgiven. Be like trying to wipe a white shirt clean with a muddy hand. We're trying to make ourselves clean, but it only leads to it being more dirty. And, And this is true, and it's so important that you get this. This is true if you're not a Christian. So if you're here this morning, and you're not a Christian, if you're here and you've not trusted Jesus to be your savior. your biggest problem is that your sin separates you from God and puts you under His condemnation. Now, the good news is that God provides a solution for that, and we're going to talk about that in a minute, but you have to start understanding that your biggest problem isn't any of this stuff outside of you. It's the sin in you that separates you from God and puts you under His punishment. But if you're a Christian, you also need to understand that your biggest problem is still your sin. Now, if you're a Christian, there's no condemnation for those in Christ, and so you're free from the penalty of sin. But if God were to look at you, what do you think He would say your biggest problem is? Your health? Your finances? Your relationship? And the fact that you're a victim of of something, a victim of circumstance? Or would he say, I think your biggest problem is those places in your life where you are not yet like my son. If becoming like Jesus is the goal of the Christian life, if when we are glorified, we are going to be like him, then those things that that remain in us The sin that continues to dwell in us. Those are the things that God would say our biggest problem is. I read an article this week of a a pastor who has cancer. And he was writing about how he's dealing with with that cancer. and, And I hope and pray that if that were ever to happen to me, that I would be able to respond the same way. Because the title of his article was, I have cancer... But I don't think God sees that as my biggest problem. What do you think God would say your biggest problem is? The Bible says it's your sin. And and that leads us into John's clarification of why the Messiah is necessary. Why, Why do we need a savior? What has the Messiah come to do? He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Messiah's, Jesus' main purpose, the one that that John is highlighting and lifting up by calling Him the Lamb of God, is to deal with our sin. and, And the Messiah is going to deal with our sin the way that a lamb does, by dying as a substitute. There's some debate over exactly what John means when he calls Jesus the Lamb of God. It seems to me that that John is probably speaking a little better than he knows, but particularly taking into account the rest of the Gospel of John and and the way that Jesus is talked about in the rest of the New Testament, it seems to me that that John's primary focus, whether he, he knows it or not, is that Jesus is the true Passover Lamb. Let me remind you about what the Passover was because it's very important to understand how how Jesus is the Lamb of God. The people of Israel were in captivity in Egypt. This is thousands of years before the coming of Jesus. And they were oppressed. They were slaves to the Egyptians. And uh, God determined to rescue his people. So he, he raised up a leader named Moses who came and said, To the Pharaoh, God demands that you let his people go. Pharaoh didn't listen. And so God sent plagues upon Egypt. It's demonstrations of his power. But Pharaoh hardened his heart and still would not listen. And so then God went to Moses and said, I'm going to, to send one more plague, a tenth plague. And after that, Pharaoh's going to let you go. I am going to pass through the land of Egypt, and I am going to strike down every firstborn from the least to the greatest, and then he will let you go. It's a pretty terrible judgment. And it's something that would have fallen on Israel as well. But God said, I'm going to give you a way to be saved from that. I'm going to give you a way for your firstborn not to die. Take a lamb, an unblemished lamb with no broken bones, and sacrifice it and mark the lintels and doorposts of your home with the blood. And when you do, go into your house and shelter under it and don't come out until the plague is past. And if you do that, I will see the blood and I will pass over you. And so, in every house in Egypt, something died. It was either a firstborn or it was a lamb. The lamb stood in as a substitute, stood in place of the firstborn of Israel. The Israelites didn't get saved just ipso facto. They didn't get saved just because they were there and God said, well, I know who who you are, so I'm just going to pass over your house. We're saved because a lamb was slain, and the people took refuge under the blood. And John and the rest of the New Testament writers go to great lengths to show that Jesus is the true Passover lamb. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul makes it explicit. He says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. John, in, in John 19 says that when when Jesus was being crucified, it was the time when the Passover lambs were being sacrificed at the temple. And so while all the people celebrating the Passover were, were preparing their lambs for the sacrifice, Jesus was taken outside the city and crucified. The true Passover lamb. And John says that none of Jesus' bones were broken and fulfillment of the idea that the Passover lamb had to be spotless and unblemished. But unlike the Passover lamb from the first Passover, which saved from physical death, Jesus as the Passover lamb saves from eternal death. Because the judgment that He takes is not simply God's judgment against a land, it is God's judgment against the sin of the world. And so when Jesus dies, He dies as a lamb that takes the punishment that is due to His people. He dies instead of us. And this lamb isn't only a sacrifice for a select few, the, the firstborn. For the sin of the world. And that's why John goes to such lengths to demonstrate that, that Jesus is the Lamb of God, the Messiah, and that his, his primary work is going to be this work of bearing the sin of the world the way that the Passover lamb does. Because if you don't get this about the Messiah, nothing else that he does matters. If you're here today and you are not a Christian, Christ offers Himself to you freely as the Lamb of God. Christ offers Himself to you as a substitute because we all must stand before God in judgment one day. It is appointed to man once to die and then to face judgment, and you can either face judgment standing on your own and hope to bear the penalty that is due to your sin or you can stand having taken refuge under the blood of the lamb that was slain and you will be forgiven but but you have to come you have to trust him you you, can't, you don't just get automatically forgiven by knowing that a lamb was slain for sin. Just like the Israelites did not get saved from the plague simply because they knew that a lamb had been sacrificed. They had to enter the house marked by the blood and take refuge there. And so we must come to Christ and take refuge in Him, in Him alone, not in ourselves, not in our works, not in the things that, God, that we think God would be happy with. In Christ in Christ alone. And so you can, you can either say, God, I will rely on the substitute that you have provided. I will I will take the deal, his death for my death, his death or his life for my life. Or you can say, I'll keep doing it my way and we'll see how things go. So will you look to the lamb to be your substitute? To stand in your place, bear the penalty for your sin and wash you clean? If you do, the wrath of God will fully and finally pass over you. You will not be condemned. You will be forgiven. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. If you don't, the book of Revelation says that on the last day it is the wrath of the Lamb that you will face. So flee to Christ now for salvation. And if you are a Christian, you may say, well, that's all nice and good. I've done that. I know my future is taken care of. You know, my past is forgiven, I, I got all that, but I've got all these other things going on and they are a whole lot more important, a whole lot bigger problems than, than my indwelling sin. I mean, God, you know, he dealt with that, so that's not, a, that's not a big deal. But you never move past your need for Christ as the lamb because you never outgrow your need for Christ as the lamb because your biggest problem is still your sin. And God's solution to your remaining sin is not for you to try harder to please Him. It's the same as it was when you got saved. It is to look to Jesus, the Lamb of God, to receive forgiveness of your sins and restored fellowship with Him. And it's interesting to note that in heaven... The worship of Jesus is unashamedly centered on the cross and on Jesus as the lamb. 31 times in the book of Revelation, the risen Jesus is called the lamb. His his identity in heaven is marked by him having been the lamb of God slain for the sins of the world. The halls of heaven ring with the praises to the lamb who was slain. I'm going to read a brief passage from a a book by a man named Horatius Bonar who outlines just how amazing the worship of Jesus as the Lamb is in heaven. And then our worship team was going to come and we are going to sing in response because if we will spend eternity worshiping Jesus as the Lamb, then we ought to begin now. Bonner says this, it is the lamb who stands in the midst of the elders and before whom they fall down. Worthy is the lamb is the theme of the celestial song. It is the lamb that opens the seals. It is before the lamb that the great multitude stand clothed in white. It is the blood of the lamb that washes the raiment white. It is by the blood of the lamb that the victory is won. The book of life belongs to the lamb slain. It was a lamb that stood on the glorious Mount Zion. It is the lamb that redeemed the multitude who are seen following, and that the multitude is the first fruits unto God and unto the lamb. It is the song of the lamb that is sung in heaven. It is the lamb that wars and overcomes. It is the marriage of the lamb that is celebrated. It is to the marriage supper of the lamb that we are called. The church is the lamb's wife. On the foundation of the heavenly city are written the names of the 12 apostles of the lamb. Of this city, the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple. Of that city, the Lamb is the light. The book of the life of the Lamb and the throne of the Lamb sum up the wondrous list of honors and dignities belonging to the Lord Jesus as the crucified Son of God. I'll call the worship team to come back up, and we will sing, and as they come, we will pray. Glory and honor and power are yours by right, O Lord God, for you created everything that is, and by your will they were created and have their being. Glory and honor and power are yours by right, O Lamb that was slain, for with your blood you have redeemed for God from every family and language and people and nation kingdom of priests to serve our God and so to him who sits upon the throne and to Christ the lamb be worship and praise glory and might forever and ever amen